Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. We're going to begin with Out of Control, Apocalyptic Psychology in the Age of Trump, written by Harvard professor Dr. Richard Creighton. Because it's no longer 2015, Mr. Trudeau, my message to our Prime Minister. Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan is back with us on the Roy Green Show. The picture of poverty in Canada. An Angus Reid Institute report one of four Canadians experienced notable economic hardship. Suzanne Stewart lives with PTSD and several chronic pain-causing health conditions following a serious automobile accident in 2002. Hear her story. He's a professor at Harvard University and a senior medical doctor at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's a trained psychoanalyst, and his book is Out of Control, Apocalyptic Psychiatry, Psychology, rather, in the Age of Trump, Apocalyptic Psychology in the Age of Trump. Dr. Creighton, I knew what was going to happen when I talked about Donald Trump yesterday. I knew that I'd be getting some negative response from Donald Trump supporters. I just didn't know it was going to be as much as I got. How, how divided is the spectrum? How, are, how divided are people, and, and what's the psychological rationale behind all of this? Uh, the answer is, I think, it, the nation is currently very divided. Uh, there's very little gray, I think, to be found uh, of anywhere in the middle. And um, it's not really clear uh, as to why things are as uh, polarized as they are. It's been a long time coming, I think. It's been developing over many decades now, since the 1960s or so, I would say, maybe even longer than that. Um, but currently, I think everyone has strong feelings about their values and feels that they're under attack. And uh, so we're, we're more defensive now than, than we might have been a number of years ago about the political and, and psychological um, aspect of, of life or or politics that we've decided to follow individually. We're more protective of it then. I think we're more protective. I think we're more defensive. I think we're, as I note in the book, more obsessional and more rigid in our views than in, in previous times. And I think uh, things have taken on kind of a religious aura. Uh, so it's almost more like a religious warfare, a religious conflict than it is political conflict. You wrote, and uh, I, I like this this quote. It's, it's interesting. It's about the left, and uh, you write about the left. Uh, they are, the answer to the way they are can be identified in a virtue-signaling obsessional elite currently concentrated in academia, the mainstream liberal press, and supported by like-minded individuals on social media, one that is intent on avoiding unpleasant realities that do not jibe with their abstract utopian ideology. 
So it's my way or the highway. <laughs> well, I, I think what you are seeing from the left is uh, the uh, presentation of what could be called a, a utopian psychology. It, it really is uh, something that emerges periodically, historically. Uh, you, we saw it in the French Revolution. We saw it in the Russian Revolution, in Venezuela currently, in Cuba. Uh, the ideas of socialism have a certain appeal for certain individuals, uh, but in practice, they just never seem to really work very well, at least not the uh, extreme left-wing socialism that's currently being uh, propagated in, on the left. So, so no and, matter... I'm sorry, go ahead. And I think everything that we're currently experiencing is exacerbated and made worse uh, by the by the internet and social media. Uh, you know, opinions uh, are being put out there, and they move uh, people in large numbers and, and very rapidly. So I think everything that we saw in, in the past is just much more intense, intensified by social media and the internet. Now, I'm on the right of the political spectrum. Those of us who are on the right of the political spectrum are also inclined to defend our territory against assault from the left or what we perceive to be an assault from the left, and we're very quick to reply and respond. What's your assessment of, of, of people on, on the right of the spectrum? Is it just the opposite of the people on the left? Well, I, I think the people on the right tend to be more heterogeneous in their responses than, than on the left, at least in the United States currently. Uh, and so you find people who have very uh, hardline responses, but you find, I think, more people who are somewhat more gray in their reactions. Um, and the fact of the matter is the, the, the mainstream media uh, is, is largely aligned with the political left and so it's hard for the right to really get their message out in an effective way, you know, to the average individual who may not be politically inclined. So the title of the book is Out of Control, Apocalyptic Psychology in the Age of Trump. Is Donald Trump really the, the metaphor for everything that's going on, or is, is, he, is, he, the, is he what's made possible the, the attitudes that, that have come to the fore now? They may, you know, they were there before. But now they're in the forefront. Is, has Donald Trump been the, the person who's had that kind of influence? Donald Trump is, is, is a master showman. Uh, and Donald Trump is an individual who, who likes publicity. Uh, he likes the limelight. And he is, he's managed to get most of the country and most of the world completely obsessed with his behavior. Uh, but when you actually look at what Donald Trump has actually done, uh, at least from my perspective, uh, he's done a lot of very positive things. I think he's been probably the most effective president that I can recall in my last uh, 60 or so years on the planet. Uh, so he's a polarizing figure, but he enjoys the polarization. Uh, and I think that's part of what's driving things. So obviously there's a lot of conflict going between the left and the right, but Donald Trump does very little to damp it down. Now, how is that attitude that you have, the, the position that you have about Donald Trump's success as president of the United States, how does that play on a campus like Harvard? It doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> it, it doesn't play at all. Uh, you know, Harvard, like most academic institutions, is well aligned with the progressive left, and uh, much more so than I recall when I first started working there many years ago. Uh, so, no, uh, it's a very politically correct institution, and uh, 
while there aren't any violent reactions for the most part to people uh, having conservative opinions, they are frowned upon. What I say to people on the left frequently is you're living in your own echo chamber. Uh, yes. People who are in the middle of the spectrum, people who go about their daily lives just getting through life, they voted for Donald Trump in the United States for a reason. In Ontario, we just had an election uh, for of a arguably a populist conservative in the province of Ontario in Canada. And uh, in the next federal election, I would vert, I would guess that the current liberal prime minister is going to be defeated because of situations of his own creating. But the people who are on the right of the spectrum are are not going to be swayed by what the people in the echo chamber on the left constantly repeat, are they? Uh, I don't think they are, and certainly they weren't in the last election when they went to the polling places. Uh, you know, I think most people have uh, somewhat conservative views about many topics, and certainly with respect to the economy and probably national boundaries, etc. Uh, and so I think they find the social justice issues of the progressive left uh, increasingly more radical than they can uh, find palatable. What do you think is going to happen in our greater North American society, most uh, specifically for you in the United States, but there is this polarization between left and right, and it's becoming more easily identifiable, it's becoming more easily understood, and there are, I think, 31% of Americans believe there'll be another civil war sooner than later. What, what, what do you think is going to happen? I think something cataclysmic is likely to happen, uh, whether it's going to be an actual civil war. Uh, it's hard to imagine how that would take place, but I wouldn't rule it out. But I've been much more concerned about the influences of, of forces outside of the uh, United States, particularly Russia and China, uh, taking advantage of uh, what is currently uh, an intractable uh, conflict. Yeah, you've never seen the United States internally with the kind of uh, dissent that, that that exists now and the willingness to act on that dissent, I would imagine? I think certainly not, not in my lifetime. Uh, I, I assume that during the time of the Civil War, it was uh, a rather severe conflict. But, but this, just the general way in which people behave uh, today, the, the lack of civility, the lack of respect. I've never seen a president so actively disrespected uh, in, in my lifetime by, by people on the left or the mainstream media. It's really quite, quite appalling. One final question for you, Professor Creighton. Do you get invited to a lot of parties at Harvard? Uh, I generally don't attend. <laughs> 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 it reminds me of a of a very a successful lawyer who I don't know if he's at Harvard or not. I think you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. Who was refused attendance at parties and on, on Martha's Vineyard and, and wrote about it over the last few weeks. Well, I mean, th th there is a, a, a certain healthy degree of, of not just lack of respect, but an intolerance. I think for opinions that are outside the mainstream. Uh, places that never used to have official policies and now have official mindsets about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable with respect to what you say and behave and how you behave. And so, yeah, it's problematic, and it's certainly not in the mainstream of what was once liberal society and the free speech movements in, in academia in, in the United States. Yeah. Dr. Creighton, thank you so much for the time. You're very welcome. 
Dr. Richard Creighton, uh, professor at Harvard and a senior physician at the Massachusetts General Hospital. His book is Out of Control, Apocalyptic Psychology in the Age of Trump. Hit up Apple Podcasts or Google Play and subscribe to the Roy Green Show podcast. The Roy you want, when you want it. And the reason I wrote this is because I was listening to quotes like the one that we just heard from Justin Trudeau. And I became angered, I suppose. No, not angered. Yeah, maybe. About the fact that the whole story of his groping or sexually inappropriate behavior seems to have been pushed to the side. Two weeks ago, that's what we were talking about all weekend, and now we're not talking about it. And that's only because, in my view, that Mr. Trudeau's supporters and friends in various strata of our society have done whatever they can to just bury the story. And I'm here with a shovel. I'm not here to bury it. I'm here to unbury it. So here's what I wrote. <clears throat> I said, uh, because it's 2015, he said, in what many believed was the setting of a new standard of recognizing the true equality of women. Because it's 2015 became the rallying cry for those who looked to Canada's new prime minister as the minstrel of gender fairness. Because it's 2015. And now that it's no longer 2015, and playing the numbers game is no longer accepted as a definition of gender respect, and because 2015, since 2015, men like Bill Cosby, Massimo Pacetti, Harvey Weinstein, and Scott Andrews have been tagged as bearers of public scorn and alleged or convicted opportunists of the merry-go-round of sexual miscreants. Cosby's name was legend, Dr. Huxtable, Fat Albert, and Alexander Scotty Scott for those with sufficient battle scars to remember I Spy and Pierre Trudeau. Massimo Pacetti and Scott Andrews, well, they were local big shots at home. But MPs, liberal MPs, just long enough to be fired from the Liberal Party, ranks by Pierre's kid. Ah, yes, Pierre's kid. The lifelong feminist whose activist support of sexual, sexually man manhandled women predated by uh, years his alleged inappropriate handling of a young female reporter at the Kokanee Summit Festival in August 2000 alleged. Yet 18 years later, and now himself, Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau acknowledged his apology to the Creston Valley Advance reporter. Why? Because the woman appeared upset. Justin, though, after reflecting very carefully on what I remember from that incident almost 20 years ago, and again, I feel I am confident that I did not act inappropriately, part of this awakening, we've had or are having as a society a long-awaited realization is that it's not just one side of the story that matters, quote-unquote. Utter baffledy-gabble, or as Valerie Bourne, publisher of the Creston Valley Advance in 2000, and in whom the young reporter confided, put it, tap-dancing. In this, the year of Me Too, hashtag Me Too, should Justin Trudeau become the subject of an in independent investigation? Of course not declared the Prime Minister. Quote, part of this awakening that we're having as a society, a long-awaited realization, is that it's not just one side of the story that matters, that the same interactions can be, in, can be experienced very differently from one person to the next. 
Notching the self-absolvency gear more firmly in place, Trudeau pattered on. Quote, this lesson that we're learning, and I'll be blunt about it, often a man experiences an interaction as being benign or not inappropriate, and a woman, particularly in a professional context, can experience it differently, and we have to respect that and reflect on that. End quote. Self-serving drivel which would meet rejection from the manager of a small department in a Canadian startup company. The shameful cover fire for Trudeau, provided by Federal Employment Minister Patty Haydu, who insisted she was proud of the Prime Minister's response to the complaint, simply confirms for many, if not most Canadians, that their impression of politics and politicians is spot on. Justin Trudeau had already been judged lacking defined ethics by Parliament's watchdog in such matters. So Pierre's son lauded murderous Cuban dictator Fidel Castro as a great family friend, he shared with us. This prime minister has attempted to persuade Canadians of his personal outrage over being forced to deliver a $10.5 million settlement to self-confessed war criminal and terrorist Omar Khadr. When a Canadian military veteran demanded to know why Trudeau continues to fight his wounded fellow veterans in court, the reply, met by booing, was, because they're asking for more than we can give right now. It has been a mere two weeks since the nation demanded its prime minister satisfactorily explain what he apologized for in Creston, B.C. in 2000. The nation continues to wait and must not allow the self-described feminist to escape true public judgment. And because it's 2018. So that's what I wrote, and you can find it at RoyGreenShow.com, or you can go to my Twitter feed, at uh, The Roy Green Show, and you'll see my, uh, my links to, to that, um, that piece, because it's no longer 2015, Mr. Trudeau. The Roy Green Show Podcast, ready and waiting for you anywhere, anytime. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Google Play today. The Premier's conference in New Brunswick resulted in agreements on more beer and other alcohol being allowed to be transported across provincial territorial borders, and uh, they're working toward a national pharmacare program. Saskatchewan and Ontario announced they would not support the Trudeau carbon tax, and the other provinces refused to join Saskatchewan and Ontario. That means we have... For now, two courageous governments who are doing the right thing, and the others are, well, they're the others. Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan is back with us. Premier, thank you for the time. Oh, thank you, Roy. We appreciate it. Uh, what was the general tone of the uh, of the meeting? It was a good meeting. Uh, you know, there's a, a variety of topics uh, that we discussed over the course of a few days there. Um, um, but I would say it was, it was a good meeting, and, uh, you know, always everyone... Uh, irrespective of, you know, which party we represent uh, from a political perspective, understand that we are leaders of our, of our provinces and uh, working to, towards, you know, some type of, of uh, you know, some type of outcome, if you will. Uh, some, some conversations are a little tougher than others, but, uh, you know, it was, all in all, I think it was a good meeting, impressed with uh, Premier Ford. Uh, you know, came forward with a couple issues uh, important to the people of Ontario, and he represented, uh, uh, you know, the, the people that he represents very, very well. So talk to us, please, about uh, what happened, the dynamic between Saskatchewan and Ontario, and maybe what you can about the conversations you had with the Premier, which had you both align against participating in the pan-Canadian carbon tax, which Prime Minister Trudeau insists is going to happen. And should surprise no one. Um, Premier Ford ran on, on this platform, and he's implementing precisely the 
the uh, the policy initiatives that he said he was going to. So I, I, I would hope that, that no one is surprised by the stance Premier Ford has taken. I don't think we've ever uh, wavered or, or have any in any way indicated that we would be, uh, you know, putting a carbon tax on the industries and jobs in our province. And, and uh, you know, there's there's a number of other issues that I think Premier Ford has uh, run on as well, is, is to ensure that he gets his fiscal house in order on behalf of the people that live in Ontario and pay taxes in Ontario, and to ensure that, that uh, Ontario can remain the economic powerhouse that it has been uh, in, in decades gone by in our nation by ensuring the competitiveness of our industries. And I think that was one thing that was maybe missed coming out of this meeting that I think is one of the the uh, the major moves forward, major initiatives coming out of this meeting is to have a meeting where we've invited the, the Prime Minister to a meeting of the First Ministers on competitiveness of our industries here in the nation. We've had three, three First Ministers meeting meetings on carbon and and now we're finally going to have one on ensuring that we can retain the competitiveness of our industries and our jobs across the nation and i look forward to that and top of top of conversation there will be policies such as a carbon tax well it's those kinds of meetings and it's decisions on uh, on the economy which are going to fuel canada's prosperity and uh, and that's what you need to have the carbon tax well not so much yeah it, well <laughs> one because it doesn't work uh, two, it's just a uh, you know a transfer of money from uh, from well actually from from everyday people uh, to the government is essentially what it turns out to be. Um, but most importantly, it doesn't work. It doesn't doesn't reduce uh, carbon in any way, shape, or form. Nor has it uh, on its own uh, where it's been implemented anywhere else. And so it is a it puts us at a competitive disadvantage. In particular, when you see what's happening with our like like uh, industries or similar industries south of uh, south of the 49th parallel. So we had, uh, you know, some some good talks about about our trade with our neighbors, uh, good talks with our trade within the nation of Canada. But I'm looking forward to the uh, the conversations that come out of this to ensure that our industries remain competitive into the future. And again, um, I've always said um, we have some of the most competitive industries. We need to keep them that way. We also have some of the most sustainable industries here in Canada, and we need to continue to also have that conversation, but not one at the expense of the other. No, exactly, and, uh, and and you also want to have uh, better access to uh, international markets for for our Canadian products and our Canadian natural resources, uh, and that to me sounds like first of all, the first thing is pipelines. Oh, absolutely. First, first and foremost, we need we need agreements with uh, with nations uh, all around the world. Most importantly, our 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 closest trading partner, the United States. Uh, second, and, and and also very important to that, is how do we actually get those products uh, to those markets all around the world and to the United States? Uh, it's through rail, it's through tra- truck transport, through, uh, you know, freight on uh, over water on, on barges, but it's also through pipelines to get it to our, to our ports and to have that port capacity to get, um, in Saskatchewan's case, agricultural products, mine products like potash, timber products like our, our lumber, but, but also our energy products, which make up a large amount of our exports by value uh, to get those to a, to a coastal uh, location so that we can get them uh, to other areas of the world and actually receive the, the price that they, they uh, the world price for those products. We, we're taking a shellacking each and every year financially on, on only having one customer out of the Midwest here, and that's, that's the United States. So as, as you know, we're, we're great advocates of the Kinder Morgan uh, pipeline. We want that to be built sooner rather than later. Uh, we continue to advocate for an eastern pipeline of some type as well so that we can continue to provide 
you know, sustainable energy products from Western Canada or Saskatchewan, most particularly to our to our Canadian neighbours uh, in the eastern part of our of our nation, and we will continue to advocate for that as well. Was the issue, Premier Mo, of continuing the continuing trade dispute with the United States part of your discussions with the with the, with the other premiers? Yeah, for certain it was, and uh, you know, there's great concern. Uh, um, and I, different levels of concern, I might add, as well, but great concern in general with respect to uh, our trade relationship with the U.S. But we also need to understand that, um, you, you know, a province like Saskatchewan, just over a million people, we, we do give or take uh, about $30 billion worth of trade uh, or exports uh, around the world, 55% of that heading to the to the United States. Um, there's other provinces that are much, much, much lower in uh, with respect to the amount of exports or the amount of impact they'll have uh, from from uh, you know a, a North American free trade agreement, uh, but there's also uh, provinces like like Ontario, for instance, that would have you know ten times the impact as well as they export great amounts of valuable products like automobiles and and manufactured goods uh, to the U.S. So there is some variability around the table is, with respect to. Uh, just how important that deal is, um, but it's tremendously important uh, to uh, to Canadians in general. As as uh, our exports, I've always said, are the source wealth of our of our economies and and all of the other um, you know service uh, industries that we have essentially come from expanding that that source that source wealth that we have in our in our communities. Um, so great conversation about it. We had a go forward uh, um, uh, um, initiative that we had put forward that we've been doing already here in Saskatchewan. I know Premier Ford is doing it as well as he had his, I believe it was his industry minister down in Washington. He's been on the phone to governors across the nation. And uh, as we have, I've been in the U.S. myself three times uh, going again as soon as we can, uh, and and we're going to have a, a significant premier's presence at the National Governor's uh, midterm meeting in Washington in February. Um, I had went to the one previous year a couple of months ago. I believe it was in Phoenix. I was down at the Western Governor's in, in Rapid City. But we need to engage uh, as premiers, as a federal government, and as a prime minister. Our prime minister needs to engage on this file because of the importance uh, to Canadians. Yeah, it always sounds to me like the whenever I speak to the Premier of Saskatchewan, to you and then your your predecessor, Mr. Wall, it always sounds like the person I think should be the Prime Minister of Canada. That aside, <laughs> that, that aside for a moment, was there discussion about proper policing of our border? Yes. Um, you know, Premier Ford had uh, brought that forward uh, um, um, quite adamantly, actually, on behalf of uh, people most uh, uh, notably in the Toronto area, but on behalf of people in Ontario with respect to um, not not just the policy on, on people crossing between border crossings, but on the federal government uh, shirking their duty, if you will, with respect to funding uh, the individuals that are that are coming. And, and we had chimed in on that uh, to some degree at the immigration minister's meeting that when a government of any level makes a commitment uh, or, or makes a commitment to a policy decision to, in this case, uh, you know, allow, allow people into the nation, illegal border crossers, if you will, uh, into the nation. And, 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 and uh, uh, they, they should back that policy up with the funds that are necessary to ensure that those individuals are taken care of and not, not uh, uh, delegate that, that funding to municipal or provincial levels. And it's substantial amounts. It's in the, in the millions of dollars. Premier Ford brought that forward on behalf of uh, the people of Ontario, that the federal government should fund that. And I believe it was part of uh, one of the communiques that went out. So he deserves, uh, you know, full credit for bringing that up and for uh, advocating uh, premiers around the table on that topic. And sooner than later, the federal government should be aware of what borders are. 
Yeah, absolutely. Now, you also had, uh, and I won't keep you much longer, maybe a minute or so, Premier, thank you for your time again. The uh, the issue of transporting uh, beer and wine from across provincial uh, borders uh, was resolved, or, or is on the way to being resolved, right? Yeah, there, there's a number of, uh, of topics that have been, you know, talked about. Beer, beer and wine, uh, the most notable, maybe the flagship top flagship uh, um, topic when we discuss some of the, the trade barriers that we have between between our provinces. And, and listen, we need to work very hard as, as provincial leaders to to continue to eliminate these, these barriers and to continue to create new ones, uh, whether they be financial barriers or, or non-financial barriers. And, and I, I think the, the beer and wine one was... Uh, was just indicative of, of where everyone understands this conversation needs to go. We actually removed four other, or took uh, action on four other recommendations that were put put forward by the by the committee on uh, at the regulatory uh, cooperative table that we had, and a commitment to work very quickly on another 19 um, sensitivities uh, that are or trade sensitivities that are there interprovincially. Um, th- this is something that we need to continue to work very hard on, and we're, and we're committed to around the table. Premier Mo, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. We, uh, we, we, we learn a lot from you. We learn what's going on in the country, and I know uh, we're all better for it. Well, we live in an, in an exciting time and an exciting nation, so I, uh, I look forward to the, to the days, weeks, and months ahead. All right. Take care, Premier. Thank you for the time again. Bye-bye. Premier Scott Moe from Saskatchewan. It's great to have him on the program. He's always very, very, very good with giving us his time. The Roy Green Show podcast is the only podcast hosted by Roy Green. Which makes sense. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play. An Angus Reid Institute report that came out a couple of days ago talks about poverty in this country. And I'm just reading from their release. By looking at lived experiences rather than income with some striking results. First chapter of the reports finds fully one in five Canadian adults, 21% say an inability to afford dental care has been a chronic problem for them in their lives. One in six are routinely unable to afford new clothes or good quality groceries, and one in seven have struggled with inadequate housing, spaces that are too small or too far from work or school, throughout their lives. Then looking at these experiences in aggregate, the researchers were able to sort the Canadian population into four groups, the struggling, 16% of the population, those on the edge, 11%, those who are recently comfortable, 36%, and those who are always comfortable at 37%. As their name suggests, the struggling are facing financial challenges that are negatively affecting their quality of life, and those on the edge are not far from joining them. Between these two groups, more than one quarter of Canadians, 27%, could be described as experiencing notable financial hardship today. Uh, 31% are very feel very stressed about money on a regular basis. 52% believe poverty has been increasing where they live in recent years. 3 in 10 are pessimistic about their personal financial situations. And most Canadians believe their children's generation will be worse off, 43%, than they are. And uh, only 32% believe their kids will be better off. Laurel Rothman joins us on The Roy Green Show. She's a longtime national coordinator of Campaign 2000 and child poverty in Canada. Laurel, thank you very much for the time. These numbers, I would imagine none of them surprise you. No, un- unfortunately not. Uh, what is interesting, I think, is that they, they didn't specifically 
talk about poverty per se, but sort of the uh, defining characteristics that people who live in low income talk about, having no choice, barely being able to make ends meet, never being able to buy new clothes, rarely a new appliance that they really need, let alone going to the dentist, and of course worrying about a safe, secure uh, roof over their heads. So, uh, and I think what it reflects is that it's probably people in the lowest income and that next 20% above who are just barely managing. We're talking here at uh, about, I mean, 21% uh, say an inability to afford dental care has been a chronic problem all their lives. And uh, we're talking at really significant numbers of Canadians, 16%. Of the total population uh, are struggling on the edge 11%. That would be over 3 million right there. Um, we were talking about more than half the Canadian population. I mean, one in four in this report has faced poverty. But more than half the population believes poverty has been increasing where they live in recent years. So there's not a lot of optimism either. Uh, no, I, I think that that's true. And it... Um, uh in, in some ways, our experience of what, what our partner groups that we work with across the country are saying is they're hearing it lots of places, cities, suburbs, rural areas, remote areas, uh, certainly in, in definitely in the far north, uh, and sometimes like uh, teachers and principals and community workers will say they're, will say they're hearing people um, – who say they are struggling um, that they wouldn't have heard 10 years ago. And I would imagine that the exterior appearance doesn't necessarily reflect on what the financial reality of a person or a family is. Uh, that's true. I mean, I think um, it, it, does, it does depend. Certainly, probably the need for things like uh, decent... Uh, uh, coats and boots and hats in the winter, if you don't have the right fitting, correct fitting or warm enough, um, you know, apparel, that probably does, is obvious, but lots, lots of things are not. We don't necessarily know when parents are skipping meals so that they can feed their children, but we do know that's happening from uh, annual surveys that are done, uh, have been done for at least the last 15 years. So we know that, um, you know, what's known as food insecurity, people who are not either getting enough adequate food or enough food, period, uh, we know that's growing. What are some of the, uh, what are the things we need to know that, uh, that you know, that you've experienced, that you've seen, that you've studied, that you've written and talked about, about poverty and, uh, and, and, and hunger and inability to, to really function um, appropriately in our society, what are some of the numbers? Some of the not not necessarily the numbers, but what are the things we need to know? Well, I guess maybe the first thing we should say to people is, while the Angus Reid study and others may not be reflecting a lot of optimism, there is reason to be to look positively because this is not rocket science. We do know some things that are effective. We know that our income transfer programs, whether it's the Canada Child Benefit that's made a difference, whether it's uh, employment insurance, uh, disability supports, 
um, the working income tax benefit, which you know helps people who are only able to get very small amounts of part-time work, helps uh, provide a small, not big enough, but a small supplement uh, and recognizes the importance of uh, paid employment. We know that there are some things that can be done that are effective, and there are some things that are being done not enough, and sometimes not fast enough, especially in terms of affordable housing and child care. So kids who go hungry on a regular basis in this country, is there a number? Is there a percentage? Um, no, not that I, that I know of per se. I think what we do know is that more than 17% of children live in low-income families, and I'm just going to scroll down and get, give people uh, a number to, uh, uh, as to what that means. That means um, one parent and one child um, earning uh, 25000 or so dollars, less, uh, less than that uh, after tax, would be considered in low income. We know in lots of places in this country you can barely pay the rent, buy enough food, and make sure um, you know you provide any uh, medication or essential uh, clothing necessities and survive on that amount of money. That's one parent, one child. One parent, one child. Yeah. Doesn't seem right, does it? No, it doesn't. And I think um, in increasingly, at least, we feel we have the what would be the word ear of decision makers at many provincial levels and the federal levels and often our local municipalities are the ones that uh, um, get, get, uh, feel the first um, impact of this and, and certainly our, our schools and our community centers, sometimes our you know, religious organizations where people may congregate. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, people are working on it, but we, there sure needs to be stronger leadership stronger public policy so that our, you know, voluntary sector that's giving what it can and doing what it can to support people and people supporting themselves could be more successful. Well, I know that people on an individual basis are, if they're confronted with someone who's really having a a tough time, on an individual basis, people will frequently stand up and do something and step forward and, and do what they can. And there's this, there, there is a communal sense of gen- generosity. It has to be harnessed. And some of these numbers just absolutely concern me. If people want to get involved with, with, with childhood poverty, what can they do? Well, you know, it probably, most likely, they're going to do it locally. So they might go to, if they're active in a church, a mosque, or a synagogue, they can go there. Often there are uh, food banks or food support programs. Um, sometimes uh, there are local uh, affordable housing programs that need help, mm-hmm. community centers. They can also um, contact us if they don't know what else to do at Campaign 2000. We're, we're, um, we'll put them in touch with somebody in their What's your website? Uh, uh, Campaign2000.ca. Campaign2000.ca. Laurel Rothman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Okay. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Longtime coordinator, national coordinator for Campaign 2000 and Child Poverty in Canada, campaign2000.ca. 
Visit Apple Podcasts or Google Play now and sign up for the Roy Green Show podcast 100% free. 100% Roy. I want to introduce you to um, someone I'm looking forward to speaking to, Suzanne Stewart lives with PTSD and several chronic pain-causing health conditions. Following a serious automobile accident in 2002, Suzanne is an outspoken and well-recognized supporter for patients suffering from intractable pain and whose opioid medications are being systemically withdrawn as a false equivalency between illegally concocted street drugs with medically produced and tested and approved opioid medications. Suzanne Stewart is not pro-opioid. She's pro-providing anything which medically improves pain relief. In her case, that happens to be opioids. And they are being withdrawn by her doctor, whose attitude is also changing toward her. Suzanne Stewart is a pain health advocate, a writer and a blogger, and an ambassador for the U.S. Pain Foundation. Suzanne, I first heard about you maybe five or six days ago from a from a listener to this program, and uh, in that time, we've been able to connect and communicate by email. It's an honor to speak with you. How This is not a throwaway question. How are you? I'm going through a rough time, but it's very nice to meet you, too. Thank you. I'm happy to be here to help. When when you say, I, I, I always ask people what it is they're living with so our listeners can have a, a better sense of what's going on, because so many people are living with intractable pain, and they're being, there's an equivalency being created, a false one, that their intractable pain, the patient's intractable pain, is like the person who's consuming illegally produced street drugs when nothing further is further from the truth. What are the, what are the, what are the issues that you're living with, Suzanne? I live with systemic, full-body, complex regional pain syndrome, which is CRPS, or also called RSD, which is known as a suicide disease. It's the highest form of chronic pain known to mankind. I also have a form of Ehlers-Danlos Danos Syndrome type 4, the vascular kind. I have rheumatoid arthritis. I have multiple herniated discs in my back and my neck and bulging. I have Chiari malformation, which causes migraines. And um, Trying to think of anything else that I can think of. I have um, dysautonomia, autonomic neuropathy, uh, a lot of things. <laughs> and yet here you're, you're, you're still able to, uh, you still manage to support yeah. others who are living in horrible situations as you are and increasingly are, as we've been finding out, being denied medication that has been provided to them by prescription for a period of years, in some cases 10 to 15 years, where their doctor is just suddenly informing them, well, that's it. Or you're going to get some for a short period of time, a few weeks, and then that's it. Or we're going to knock you down to 50% of what you're taking in the next two or three weeks, and then that's it. Even though the, the, the colleges of physicians and surgeons in this country tell us repeatedly that's really not happening, the doctors don't understand what they're supposed to do, that they're not supposed to be cutting people off or dramatically reducing. So every doctor just doesn't quite get it. Uh, what's what's happening to you and what's the common story in the United States, Suzanne, as far as patients being taken off their medication and, and involuntarily removed? Correct. People, including me now, um, have been cut off. First of all, your doctor starts changing his 
respect, I guess you'd say, for you. It feels like that's what I've heard from many people that it happened to me. And then changing in the way he talks to you and disassociating from that personal, you know, doctor-patient relationship that you always had or thought you had. Um, and then people are just being either inadvertently just walking into their doctor's office and they're saying no more opioids after today. You're, either today's your last day, today you're not getting any more, or you have, you know, they're taken down maybe 50% and then to zero. In my case, I'm being, I got taken down 25% overnight and have to stretch it out over a longer period of time. And then on August 10th, I have nothing. August 10th, that's it. You're done. Done. So, so do they? Do they ever? But I'm not sure. They can never explain, can they, why it was necessary for them to prescribe the uh, the, the the pain medications that they prescribed for a long period of time, and now they suddenly have to uh, have to have to stop it. They can't explain it because if they if they fall back on the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in the United States, which issued the guidelines that we've ex- adopted in this country, which are as wrong here as they are in the United States, and. CDC's had to admit that they've made very, very serious mistakes. The doctors will not explain why it is that you needed this very prescriptions uh, just a few weeks ago, and now you don't need them anymore. Correct. Fifteen years I was on this medication. Fifteen years. And they took me three years to get on it. They begged me to take it. I tried everything else first. Everything else first. I had nine years of PT. I tried so many things, and they kept saying, well, they'd even write in their, um, in my notes, you know, She's not taking all the medicine she's supposed to. No wonder she's still hurt. She needs to do what she's told and take the medicine. And I'm like, well, I never even smoked a cigarette. I don't want to do this. I really don't want to do this. They told me, trust them. I trusted them. I did well for 15 years. I'm a grandmother. I'm a mother. I got to do some things. And now I'm not going to be able to do anything. And I do need to tell you the really silly reason what the doctor told me, because I just can't wait to get this one out. Um, The reason that the doctor told me that he was taking me off of it is because I'm not fat enough that the fentanyl patch doesn't work unless you're fatter than me. I'm a normal 140-pound, 5'5 woman. I'm not anorexic or anything. I don't understand it. And I was much thinner when I started on those 15 years ago, so I don't understand it. Then he told me, well, and also it's only for cancer patients now, which was proven from the CDC guide, from the CDC when Kalodney asked about it, that uh, he asked them to make cancer pain and regular chronic pain different. And they said, we can see no difference. There's no scientific research for that. There is no difference between chronic pain and cancer pain. We cannot prove it, so therefore it can't be. And, uh, you know, so the doctor lied to me about both of those things. Here you are, and you're going through all of this, and uh, I read a post by you on the nationalpainreport.com, Keep Hope Alive. And it begins with, you never think it'll happen to you until it does. I've been helping others and advancing for them for many years now, advocating for them for many years now. I've been writing for the National Pain Report and my own blog, tearsoftruth.com, for several years as well. I try to give advice to others to help keep their hope alive. It's difficult, as I talk to pain patients fairly regularly off the air and increasingly on the air, it's, it's difficult for people to keep their hope alive, and they start to talk about some of the most terrible consequences imaginable, imaginable including mm-hmm. ending their own lives. And I've talked to the widow and, and orphan 
of a 52-year-old man in Vermont who took his own life after he was shunted from pain clinic to doctor to pain clinic and back. I've talked to the mother of, of a 30-year-old police officer in, uh, in Montana who took her life or her own life. She has a 12-year-old son. was a great athlete, good cop, and then she developed these terrible pain realities which could hit anybody at any time. And still, these brigands who, who refuse to acknowledge that millions of people require opioid pain medications, uh, they still continue to say, well, it's this conflate numbers. They equate people who die on the streets who are not chronic pain patients, who are addicts, and have that as an illness they carry with them. They equate deaths on the streets with suicides of pain patients who've been denied medication, prescribed medication. I don't know for the life of me, Suzanne, how they get away with it. Me either. There's, they're, they're putting out fake statistics as well. Um, the American Journal of Public Health in, either in April of 18 and in USA Today in June, um, you know, they said that the true number is really 17,087 or so. But the number that they're putting out is like 66,000 people are dying because they're lumping us together with addicts. They're not separating the two different illnesses. We're at about 10% of those numbers because our population in Canada is about 10% of the population in the United States. So if we look at the U.S. numbers, you'd be looking at about 400,000 people who die every year because of tobacco-related illnesses. They don't remove yep. tobacco from the marketplace. If, if tobacco had never been invented or never been understood, not invented, but if it had never been understood that it could be turned into a cigarette or a chewing uh, option, and somebody suddenly today arrived at a, at a medical um, approval agency and said, hey, I want to make cigarettes and cigars and I want to create chewing tobacco, I've done the research, and 400,000 people are going to die every year, but I want to do it anyway. What are the chances they'd get the permit? Zero. Right. But 400,000 people are allowed to die and they sell the product, and yet people who are in agony, constant agony, they're required to live without the medication that has passed all the medical scrutiny. It's, it's, and it was derived for that. Yeah, purpose. exactly. That's what it does. What's being done, Suzanne? What, what's, what, is there any progress in the U.S. on this file, on this issue? Well, one thing that I did, I did want to say quickly, though, is that the doctor tried to offer me to take me off the patch and give me a medicine that made me very ill years ago and would make me more ill now because I also have gastroparesis. And my specialist doctor even wrote a letter saying that I cannot take the oral opioids because I would be sicker in the hospital, could cause death. And I have heard nothing back. So I just wanted to mention that. Just doesn't care. People have been managing to function with the help of these medications for years. They, we, people have thousands of patients have written to the HHS task force and the FDA about it. They're just turning a blind eye to all this horrible, unnecessary suffering. Um, Congress right now is on the cusp of passing another huge opioid bill that's going to further restrict opioids to people who really need them. And we need everyone to please write to their federal senators and reps. That's the only thing I can tell people to do right now. You can do that from your bed. If you can go on Facebook and you can complain and you can be upset and write write to people emails and things like that, then you can go to your .gov of your state 
or your federal senators and go online and, and write a short email about what's happening to us. You, you know, know, I really, I really, everybody. I really think there's a, a cross-border effort needs to be underway among patients in North America. And so, I have a group that's Canada and USA Pain, Chronic Pain and Policies on Facebook for both of us. What What's the name of the group? It's called uh, Canada and USA Chronic Pain and Policies. Canada and USA Chronic, chronic Pain, Pain and Policies. Chronic Pain and Policies. Yes. And that's on Facebook. Yes. Okay. So, because and it's we're going, trying to work together as neighbors. Because it, it's it's going to take exactly that. It's going to take patients who will take on, I call them the brigands, who take them on and don't let them get away with what they've been getting away with. Terrifying patients and driving yes. some of them to making decisions that no human being should be forced to uh, to take because they cannot live with the intractable pain with which they're they're saddled. Your doc, your, does, does your doctor not care at all? I mean, what's, what are the conversations like with him? Well, it seems like we had a, a respectable relationship, like he re- mutual respect. And then suddenly in March, he just started acting differently towards me. Um, and I started getting physically ill before my appointments. M- my husband can attest that I would get diarrhea, nausea, dry mouth, um, sick the night before just uh, something inside was scared i must have known this was coming or whatever i tried to i'm as pleasant as i can be i'm intelligent i sit there and i I do what i'm told most you know most of the time i try to do what i'm told you know but i'm a fighter i don't give up and i mean if i if if i felt like i was going to commit suicide instead of doing that i would i will fight from my wheelchair if i have to get my husband to take me to washington i'm going somewhere i'm not giving up for all of us, not just for me. Let me just read a quick sentence here at the end of our conversation for this time. As my kind-hearted specialist physician of 15 years told me yesterday, quote, unfortunately, you, you and people like you are collateral damage to the hysteria taking place right now. Yep, he did. He was had tears in his eyes when he told me that, too. So he knows. Yep. But he's cutting you he off. He does. Oh no! This is a specialist doctor. Oh, this is another me. doctor. Okay. Yes, he told he he said this is dangerous. I'm so sorry. There's nothing that I can do except write that it's dangerous for your heart. But you know, um, I can't really. I you know, unfortunately, you are the collateral damage to the hysteria in the USA right now. Okay, Suzanne, please uh, come back on the show, and I, I want to arrange something where we have American and Canadian patients speaking to each other, so people listening can understand that the problem is. It does not have any borders, and that the that the the lack of caring, the lack of sympathy, the lack of empathy, the lack of interest, uh, is on both sides of the border in governments and the and certain parts of the medical community. Thank you so much for talking to us today. I can send you the link too. Take good care, Thank Suzanne you. Stewart, and her blog is tearsoftruth.com. That's the Roy Green Show podcast for today. Remember to go to Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or RoyGreenShow.com and subscribe.